0: if you're watching pornography, what do you fast forward through? What do you slow down for? What do you play over and over again? And the reason I ask that question is because whatever I play over and over again, there's something in that that is revealing this association that I have. And I often say pornography is not powerful. What makes it powerful are the associations that I have with it. So if this particular sexual experience is happening, then I associate blessing, or acceptance, or being chosen, or kind of like the seven desires Mm -hmm. being included. And so, when I feel lonely, then I watch that sexual experience on video, and then I get to put myself in that situation where I'm being chosen, Mm -hmm. I'm being included, I'm being desired.
1: Welcome to the Faithful and True Podcast. Today, by special request, we have uh, our clinical director, Jim Farm, is back with Greg and me. Uh, to uh, talk about uh, another question that we continue. We're going to continue our series on questions. And we, we get them all the time uh, from clients or just people that uh, that we talk to uh, about issues they're trying to deal with. So we've brought Jim in again today to share his wisdom and expertise, uh, talking about uh, the arousal template.
2: Yeah, the arousal template. So really it's coming from this question, you guys, that, that you know, I get quite often from guys of, you know, why did I, why did I choose this behavior? Why did why did I act out this way? Why couldn't I have just done something like this that they maybe have perceived as something not as intense or as, you know, painful or consequential for them?
0: Right. One one of the conversations, if you ever go to an open meeting around addiction, um, and uh, there's a variety of different addictions represented, there will be this conversation around which one is the worst addiction. <laughs> And typically what you end up with is, oh, I wished I had your addiction because it doesn't seem as difficult or painful or chaotic as mine. But the reality is all addictions create chaos. All addictions are disruptive. And it also makes sense that we're curious of the various options that we have. Why were we drawn towards the particular either um, substance or the behavior that we've been using in an addictive way?
2: Yeah. Yeah, so specifically what we're going to look at today is, you know, what are those sexual behaviors, you know, and how did they come about? You know, why did, you know, somebody develop a fetish or why did they, you know, choose to see a a, a prostitute instead of maybe just stick with pornography or, or some other
0: thing like that? Right. And um, so I want to just begin with um, one of the things that we teach at the workshop are the four core beliefs of a sex addict that were identified by Patrick Carnes. And the first one is, I'm a bad and unworthy person. Um, The second one is um, that no one will love me as I am. The third one is, no one's going to meet my needs but myself. And then the final one is, sex or a relationship is my greatest need. And one of the things I've heard someone say is, the first three core beliefs are what make you an addict. The fourth core belief, sex or relationship is my greatest need, is what makes you a sex addict. So the first thing to understand is there's something in everyone's story who struggled with sexual, sexual addiction where sexuality entered into their life and the neurochemical response was so significant, it rescued them from whatever chaos, pain, loneliness, insecurities they were experiencing and so therefore, they keep wanting to go back to that for that rescue. So part of it is, part of the answer is something came into your life at a vulnerable point that was sexual. You had a traditional, normal, neurochemical reaction to it, and then you got hooked on that neurochemical response.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we, one of the terms we use to describe that is as as an association. Mm-hmm. Our brain has associated that as relief or as a source of coping with whatever we're going through.
0: Right. Well, and even the idea of memory where, so I'm a little boy, I feel anxious, I see pornography, I discover masturbation, I ejaculate. And what happens is temporarily I get a relief from my anxiety. But what also happens is my brain remembers that relief. So the next time I feel anxiety, I go, oh, what's the solution to my anxiety? And this really can be a conscious or an unconscious thought but it's pornography and masturbation and so now i've got anxiety as a trigger um that i may or may or may not be aware of that when i feel it i go back to this behavior
2: yeah yeah it's interesting just from a neurological standpoint our brain you know when it releases dopamine in our brain it it leaves these protein markers i always kind of describe them as kind of red ribbons that you'd you know back in the day when you didn't have gps that you'd leave when you walked into a forest to find your way out mm-hmm. that's kind of what dopamine does when it's in, in the brain when it goes through these pathways it leaves these markers so whenever that associates association is made
0: it starts that that cascade that we we talk about in terms of the reward pathway right well and there's even a term that we'll talk about and that's the arousal template and mark would often talk about how this can be a visual connection it can be an emotional connection Um, And then it's a neurochemical connection. And so when you get those three things operating together, it becomes this powerful connection. And that begins to answer the question of why am I drawn to what I'm drawn towards is because I begin to have these old associations that are so powerful that they are like the way I go back home. They are the markers that create a sense of safety, even if it's false.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that arousal template the way I kind of think about it is is really a collection of thoughts, behaviors, feelings, images and even just our five senses, mm-hmm. you know, of, of all of these things that come together that formulate that sexual arousal pathway.
0: Right. And we can have other associations, you know, um if I smell uh, popcorn, I can begin to think of going to the movie um, so there are a variety of different associations that we can have. What we're talking about specifically is sexual arousal um, and sexual associations. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned that these can enter through any of the five senses. It could be the smell of a cologne or a perfume. It could be music Music that mm-hmm. I've heard. I yeah. hear a lot of um, guys talk about certain songs can be triggering because... They were the songs that they were listening to or were on the radio when they were beginning to explore sexuality with Mm -hmm. their girlfriend or boyfriend, their date. And so, these can be powerful associations, and what's interesting is, they can be operating at this unconscious level. I don't know why I'm having this type of reaction to this external stimuli, I just am. And that kind of is the, the idea of talking about a trigger. Um, a trigger is an external stimuli that creates an internal reaction. So I hear this song because I listen to it at my prom or I smell this odor, this perfume or this cologne and I associate it with an early relationship. And depending on whether or not the relationship is positive or negative, I now have a positive or negative association with that smell.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's it, and it can be very, you know, non-sexual as well. I, I had a client one time where, he didn't even realize this, but that that old style clock, you know, like we have on the wall there that does mm-hmm. kind of that tick tock noise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't even know that that was, you know, one of his associations. Right. But once we got into his story, he realized that, you know, when he was younger, his first sexual abuse experience that was on the nightstand. Right. And that was his way to cope
0: with what was happening to him. Right. But it became a part of his template. Well, and. Um, one of the things that is true is we've kind of talked about some of these may be positive associations, but like you've just identified, they can be incredibly negative associations or painful associations. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know why I'm having a negative reaction to this, but I am. Mm-hmm. You know, part of my story is I also experienced sexual abuse, and years ago, it, I was probably in my 20s, I was walking through a mall and I smelled the smell, and I started immediately having this physiological reaction. I was feeling nauseous, I I was feeling kind of disoriented, and I could not figure out what it was. And eventually I made the connection, oh, what I'm smelling is the cologne that the abuser wore, and someone had just sprayed it at the perfume or okay. cologne counter as I was walking through the mall. But it, it took some intentionality on my part, and that's one of the things that can be true, is we have these associations And we may need some support to figure out why am I having such a a, a physiological or emotional reaction to this external stimuli. Oh, it's connecting me to something from my past that can either be negative or positive. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think that's an important part of the work is understanding, you know, why am I drawn to this, you know? Sometimes, uh, I want to mention this real quickly, sometimes spouses will hear that and they'll say, uh, is that just an excuse for his behavior then? It's not an excuse, it's an explanation. Mm -hmm. And the explanation helps him be able to be aware of, so he can make changes, you know, neurologically and different choices so those associations
0: can change. And again, we say this all the time, we don't deal with the past for the purpose of blaming the past. That leaves us powerless. We want to deal with the past so that we can understand how the past is influencing the present and then we can begin to make changes about our future. But if the past is operating in this unconscious, unacknowledged way, we're actually giving it more power. So when I realized walking through the mall, oh, that's what that association is, then eventually I could smell that cologne. It was never my favorite cologne, but I didn't have that trigger response that I once did once I was able to acknowledge what it was reminding me of or what I was connecting to.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for for guys out there that maybe are embarrassed about, you know, their behavior, you know, why are we asking you to tell us, you know, what it is for you because it helps explain things. It helps Mm -hmm. to understand, you know, your story. It's, you know, just to share a few examples I think might be helpful for some of our listeners, Greg. Yeah. Um, You know, I had a client years ago and this has happened actually multiple times but i had a I had a client that came in and he was really embarrassed because he he would you know he would pay uh women to wear high heels and act out online and he was really embarrassed to share that with me and so i knew there was something to that story and so and he didn't even draw the connection with this but when he was 16 um and this is just one of the clients he, he was sexually abused by his friend's mother while she was wearing high heels Mm -hmm. and he never connected the dots. And for me listening to it, I'm like, well, it's so obvious. Mm -hmm. But when you've experienced that yourself, it's not so
0: obvious. Right. Well, in a couple of podcasts ago, Elizabeth Griffin and I did one on fetishes. And one of the things that we talked about were these associations, how a fetish is an inanimate object that we have sexualized. And so, we have these associations, it could be something that somebody wore, it could be a a place where I was, it could be some sort of visual connection that I make. But now I've sexualized this inanimate object, and I'm giving it sexual power over me, because of these associations. Yeah, Yeah. I I think another powerful association is one of the uh, questions I regularly ask uh, men is, Tell me about the first thing that you were exposed to in pornography. Mm -hmm. Um, Because for a lot of men, I mean, it just makes perfect sense. That was such an early and powerful connection that, you know, the first time that you were exposed to something sexual, the neurochemicals are just on overload, so it makes perfect sense that that is going to be a powerful connector for you. And so for many men, they they aren't even aware of it, but they are trying to recapture or reclaim that first exposure. Uh, many times, you are attracted to that first person that you saw in pornography, Mm -hmm. and so that becomes the prototype of what attraction is. Um, Or maybe if there was a particular sexual act that was being demonstrated in the pornography, that becomes your favorite type of sexual act, so you're trying to recreate it or encourage other people to do it or participate, because your little boy brain was on overload and firing on all cylinders, because the intensity of your own neurochemical response to the sexual stimuli that you are being exposed to.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, another example, just to kind of put it more of a contextual, you know, perspective in regards to how can that arousal template just beyond, be beyond the kind of the, the sexual experience itself, was um, I had a client one time where when he was younger, his parents split off, and and so he was really disconnected. His parents really weren't available to show a lot of attention to him. But one one evening he... He came out of bed and he was, he was naked, and they paid attention to him. they were laughing at him, they were mm-hmm. smiling at him well years later, you know he realizes you know he starts exhibitionist type mm-hmm. of behavior and so what he what he learned was you know i you know this this attention from others isn't freely given it's it's something that I can take from others, I can mm-hmm. shock them into seeing me right
0: right and what's interesting is it doesn't even have to be. A positive response, but any response is acknowledging that he exists. Now one of the things about exhibitionism and also um, uh, uh, voyeurism is there is this association that if I see or if I am seen in an intimate way, either naked or being sexual, then I am known. Mm -hmm. And so it's a false attempt to create connection or intimacy. And so if I'm doing something sexual in a public space, I create this sense that I'm being known and people accept me, even if their reaction is to be horrified or to have some sort of negative reaction. I'm still being seen, which I've associated with intimacy and relationship and being known.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so I think that fits kind of like with that, that fourth uh, statement around shame that you talked about. Mm-hmm. And somehow I've I've sexualized these these. these more deeper
0: emotional needs you know, that we often talk about as the seven desires here Mm -hmm. at uh, um, Faithful and True. One of the questions that I ask at the workshop and I ask men that I work with, if you're watching pornography, what do you fast forward through? What do you slow down for? What do you play over and over again? And the reason I ask that question is because whatever I play over and over again, there's something in that that is revealing this association that I have. And I often say pornography is not powerful. What makes it powerful are the associations that I have with it. So if this particular sexual experience is happening, then I associate blessing or acceptance or being chosen, or kind of like the seven desires Mm -hmm. being included. And so when I feel lonely, then I watch that sexual experience on video. And then I get to put myself in that situation where I'm being chosen. Mm -hmm. I'm being included. I'm being desired. And so I'll ask a man, if you're putting search terms in the computer, what are the search terms that you're looking for? And again, it's because whatever association they have is being revealed in that. And we talk about here that addiction occurs whenever you're trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way in a repetitive pattern. Well, if I'm watching the same sexual experience over and over again, or I'm I'm Googling the same terms over and over again, Is because somewhere hidden in that image or those terms is the legitimate need that I've sexualized so with the help of a good therapist I can get in there and figure out okay why is this so powerful well it's because of these associations
2: yeah yeah I mean to make a good point there we do want we do want men to to investigate you know these things Mm -hmm. to understand but sometimes it, it can be triggering if you're doing that just by yourself right you Absolutely. Know, it can
0: move you right into a, a slip or a relapse for sure. Well and what's interesting is what we're wanting men to do is to reframe the experience. So this has been a secret part of my life and the secrecy has actually given it more power. But if I can bring it into community, if I can bring it into a counselor's office or a therapist office and talk about it in that context, I'm actually creating a new association. Yeah. And that's one of the great things about the brain is that neuroplasticity where I don't have to live with the old associations, I actually, because of the way that God created my brain, have the capacity to create new associations. So one of the new associations can be, I can talk to my therapist, Jim, about it in his office and I can be safe and I can actually be curious about it without indulging it. Now if I were to try to do this on my own, I might fall back into the old pattern of indulging it, which like you said, becomes unhealthy and dangerous. But in the safety of an office with a trained therapist, the conversation actually begins to set me free because I'm replacing the mystery of all of this with some understanding and I'm able to see things more clearly.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's important, too, because, you know, obviously the way we work here at Faithful and True is, you know, we don't get just stuck on the behavior, you know, where a lot of guys are coming in and I don't want to share this. This is too embarrassing. It's too shameful. We're going to experience that tomorrow as guys come from the workshop and, they share things for the first time. Mm-hmm. They're going to be like, I've never shared this before. And it's because it's been so shameful and embarrassing. And you and I are not going to respond with a whole bunch of shame response. We're going to help them to understand where did that come about? right? You know, And that's well, really what we want them to do.
0: One of the phrases that I use all the time is, given your story, it makes perfect sense you do what you do. Given your story, it makes perfect sense you're drawn to what you're drawn towards. But like you've said, when I keep it to myself, I'm so consumed by the shame I'm afraid that anyone who hears this is going to reject me. And what's true is there will be some people that it might be too much for them and they would have some sort of uh, rejection reaction. But for those of us who are here at Faithful and True, we can look at it through a different lens that isn't about fear and shame. And in fact, we know that part of the path forward is shedding the shame that I've been carrying because shame is what's actually driving the addiction itself.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So what do, you, what do you think, Greg, in terms of, you know, if once we discover, you know, what's driving,
0: you know, these associations, can we do something about it? Oh, we can. <laughs> um, the idea is, so if addiction is trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way in a repetitive pattern, well, recovery is identifying the legitimate need and meeting it in a legitimate way. So let's say I'm drawn towards a particular sexual experience and the association I have with that is being chosen. And so whenever I feel excluded, rejected, um, not desired, then I can be drawn to this old pattern because in that imagery, I get to place myself in it and believe I'm being chosen. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a legitimate need to be chosen. That's one of the seven desires that Mark and Deb wrote about in their book. But to try to get chosen through some pornography and masturbation or through some sexual experience with a person that I'm not in any context of relationship and not committed to really isn't going to help me feel chosen. So the legitimate need is to be chosen. And the way to do that is to bring who I am into strong, valid, legitimate relationships so that I can experience intimacy, so that I can experience being chosen and part of the healing process is actually believing I'm choosable. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the men that I that I work with, that we work with, part of the thing that they struggle with is they feel unloved. Well, the reality is they are loved by the people in their lives, but one of their core beliefs is I'm not lovable. And if I don't believe I'm lovable, even if somebody is loving me, I'm not able to receive it. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be people who are choosing me, but if I don't believe I'm choosable, I'm not able to receive it. So the legitimate way to meet the need is to be in a safe community where people choose me. And I do the deeper work on those old core beliefs so that I can experience healing, so that I can begin to believe that I am choosable. And one of the challenges that I see is many times men stop once they understand what the legitimate need is. It's like, oh, this makes sense. Yes, I understand it. And then they stop and then they go back to the addiction. Because the second part isn't done. That's meeting the legitimate need in a legitimate way. Mm-hmm. And that's very scary because I have to ask for my needs. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that most of us are not skilled at. That's why we struggle with these other ways of trying to meet the needs. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's one of the things that that, that we talk about in recovery. Is pre-recovery, oftentimes addicts will approach relationships by limiting vulnerability and managing mm-hmm. outcomes. Right. And one of the things we want guys to do in recovery is to start to risk
0: vulnerability and letting go of the outcomes right well one of the things i believe i this just foundation i also see in the scripture is that in order for there to be transformation there must be vulnerability and for many of us we want the transformation but we don't want the vulnerability but if i'm not known i can't be safe and i can't be connected which ultimately is what god created us for that is the understanding of intimacy and so the first thing we're going to be working on here at Faithful and True is to create a safe enough environment where someone might be willing to risk and be vulnerable so that they could begin to experience that transformation. Yeah, yeah.
2: So ultimately what we're wanting to do is create new associations, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: So if the old association is, if people knew me, everyone would reject me. And we want to create experiences where, wow, here are some people that really know me, know me well and know these things I've been keeping a secret, and they actually are accepting me. And what's true is early in recovery, I may not trust that. That's okay. What we're going to help them to do is be open to the possibility that there may be some men in your life, in our case, uh, men who go to uh, a male community. There may be some men in your life that can know you and accept you. And it may take some time for you to begin to believe that you know if one of my core beliefs is um, nobody's going to accept me as I am um, well if I believe that I'm going to need some experiences new associations where who I am is known I'm I'm letting myself be vulnerable I'm letting myself be authentic and I'm actually discovering that there are people who are drawn towards me because of my vulnerability not repelled by my vulnerability again mm-hmm. that's a new association that I can have
2: mm-hmm. yeah just to, to you know kind of follow up with the the example I had with the guy that was struggling with exhibitionism he he did get invo- involved in a group here you know and, and part of the, the challenge for him is when he first entered in the group he kind of kind of went to the background was quiet mm-hmm. you know was kind of went to that familiar place of not being known not being seen and so through that group process we helped him kind of how do you how do you enter into being known and seen in healthy ways? Right. You know, and, and so he started to create new associations of how to do that.
0: Well, and one of the things that can create chaos is when we desire something and we fear something simultaneously, it's going to create chaos. So in this particular case, the, the guy desperately wanted to be known in an authentic, transparent way. And yet he was very afraid of that because he had spent so much of his life perceiving that he was invisible And so it's going to take some time for him to trust that, okay, this does create chaos because I desire it and I'm afraid of it. But somewhere along the way, I have to find the courage to not give in to the fear. Um, Again, one of the foundational needs that are apparent for recovery is courage. Because recovery is about moving towards those things I've been wanting to avoid and any time I move towards doing something new, I, I move towards risking, it's going to take courage in order for me to do that. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I appreciate this conversation. I
1: yeah. No. no, you're good. No, okay. I, I was okay. Letting you finish. I thought, okay. Oh, great, Jim's. Well, I, saw, I saw. Greg Jim, looking at his phone, Jim, and I was Jim's like, "Are we over?" No, 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 we're, we're not, not over yet. We we're okay. There. We're just about there. Uh, any parting, uh, summary statements you'd like to make about this?
2: Yeah. I. I. You know, for me, it's you know being able to take that, like Greg said, to have that courage to enter into these conversations about you know. the the things that maybe have been so shameful so embarrassing that we didn't want to bring it up you know and and so being able to enter into that actually gives you you know the opportunity to enter into this this place of hope that you do have some choices Mm -hmm. you know
1: this conversation today for me uh, kind of brings it full circle to our encouragement for men that are, are going through issues like this uh if you're struggling with these issues, to uh look into coming to our men's journey workshop, which we host every month here at Faithful and True. And these experiences that you've so beautifully uh described, uh can provide that sense of relief, that sense of, of uh kind of coming full circle with that shame and, and having it in the right perspective and, and maybe come coming to grips with those issues that they have Um, struggled with for so long
2: yeah well our what our workshop really does is it it gets beyond just the behaviors the behaviors are obviously a problem but Mm -hmm. we really want to understand you know what's underneath it and i think that's you know what we attempt to do here during the men's
0: workshop when it begins with this belief that there's a reason why i'm drawn to what i'm drawn towards it's not because i'm disgusting or there's something wrong with me or i'm a pervert none of those old shame messages but if i start with that belief okay if there's a reason, I need to understand what that reason is. If this came from somewhere in my story, it's helpful for me to know where in my story this began to develop and where these associations came from.
2: Yeah, and I like what you say at the workshop, but I think you—I think you mess with us group leaders, Greg, because during the workshop at some point you say there's there's percentage of us that we don't share, mm-hmm. and I always I always think like sometimes the, you tell the group it's like ninety ten, and then other times <laughs> it's eighty five fifteen. I think you're messing with me. <laughs> it does, change. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. But I think that's, the, that's what we talk about is what is that 15%? Because oftentimes that's the key to the recovery mm-hmm. is if, if, especially as us as therapists, if we can hear that, we can start to help you. Mm-hmm. And you can help yourself by sharing that, being by willingness to risk vulnerability around that 15%.
0: Absolutely.
1: And it starts by visiting faithfulandtrue.com. Click on the workshops and then click on the Men's Journey workshop. Uh, all the details will be there for you. There's a brief video in which uh, Greg answers the most frequently asked questions that men have about the workshop experience. And then we also have information about the Workshop for the Wives and Workshop for Couples. So we encourage you to do that. Uh, Jim, thank you so much, as usual, for joining us today.
2: Yeah, Yeah, it was good to be with you guys.
1: It's always a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, Greg, as usual, your position as host is secure. (laughs) You've you've, you've done a wonderful job. And uh, we'd like to thank our viewers and our listeners for joining us today on the Faithful and True podcast. And we hope that this coming week for you will be a week that's filled with many blessings and with great vision.